Warning. Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Children often seen as the epitome of innocence, especially by their own family. But it turns out that children are just as capable at violence as adults. A story that proves leaving young children alone is never a good idea. A case where a mother really should have been the one to tend to her infant. And a story that seems greatly inspired by the Amityville Massacre. When children are left alone too long, accidents, even horrific ones, are bound to happen. On Monday, November 16th, 2015, Raquel Thompson and her boyfriend Cornell Malone left their apartment in Houston, Texas to pick up a pizza and a prescription. They were gone for two hours, during which Raquel's four children, all under age five, were left home alone. The children were often left to their own devices and were used to entertaining themselves while left alone, but this day, it would prove a deadly and tragic mistake for all. 19-month-old Jazeera Thompson and two of her three year-old siblings decided to play with the oven, but they wanted to make it hot. So Jazeera's brother lifted her into the oven while the other toddler closed the door behind her and turned the temperature all the way up. But soon, playing house turned into a nightmare. Jazeera began kicking at the door as the heat inside rose to deadly temperatures. The children, realizing their sister was in trouble, allegedly attempted to open the oven, but couldn't retrieve their sister. When Raquel and her boyfriend finally returned home, they immediately smelled something burning and were pointed into the kitchen by three crying children. They found Jazeera still inside the oven with severe burns all over her body. And while Raquel tried to resuscitate her, it was too late. Jazeera was pronounced dead. Once the authorities became involved, Texas Child Protective Services immediately removed the three remaining children from Raquel's custody, and the mother and her boyfriend were later arrested and charged with four counts of child endangerment. Without a stable family, sometimes children can find themselves in dangerous company. 12-year-old Alex and 13-year-old Derek King were raised in a broken home in Florida with a drug-addicted mother who abandoned them and their father, Terry King, who didn't have the means to care for them all alone. The brothers endured several failed foster families, but both were eventually returned home where they lived a tumultuous coexistence with their dad. But Alex and Derek found a father figure and role model in a 40-year-old family friend, Rick Chavis. Rick often picked the brothers up from school and took them back to his house where they were allowed to smoke marijuana, watch television, and play video games, none of which was permitted under their father's restrictive rules. But Rick, it seemed, had more than fatherly feelings for Alex, whom he fell in love with and coerced into sexual acts. Alex idolized Rick and kept a hidden journal filled with love letters to him saying how they would be together forever. Things worsened at home 
and Alex and Derek ran away on November 16, 2001, but returned home shortly after to an angry father. And though Terry had never been physical with his children, Alex and Derek feared their impending punishments and decided they couldn't take it anymore. On the night of November 26, 2001, they waited until Terry fell asleep. Then Derek grabbed an aluminum baseball bat and swung it at his father's face over and over while Alex egged him on until Terry took his last breath. In an attempt to cover their crime, the brothers set their house on fire and fled to Rick's home, where they hid until the following day. Initially, Derek and Alex confessed their crimes, but later changed their story, blaming Rick for the murder. The jury, however, didn't buy their change of heart, and while Rick was found guilty of false imprisonment and accessory after the fact, the boys were convicted of third-degree murder. Both Alex and Derek have since been released and admit to feeling the weight of their crimes, but both hope to move on into the future with families of their own. Games are meant to be fun, but unfortunately sometimes they can turn into something much worse than child's play. On May 20th, 2001, in Rochester, New York, a friendly game of backyard baseball between two brothers and their friends was underway. The youngest of the group, a three-year-old, suddenly threw a stone at his six-year-old brother. The brother, who remains unnamed, retaliated by throwing a brick at the toddler. Though dangerous, the situation didn't seem truly malicious until the boy took a wooden baseball bat and began repeatedly beating his little brother in the abdomen with full overhead swings. All of the other children stood by and watched, doing nothing. The brothers returned home later that evening, but the toddler refused to eat and seemed more tired than usual, falling asleep on the couch. By 8 the next morning, the toddler's mother was pounding on the neighbor's door, screaming that her baby was dead. The medical examiner determined the toddler had perished some time in the night from internal bleeding caused by the blunt force trauma to his abdomen. Rochester Police Chief Robert Duffy said that the child in question had been placed in a foster home and would undergo a serious mental health evaluation, but would not be facing any charges under New York law. The family was found to hold no responsibility in the child's death and were allowed to mourn their loss at the toddler's funeral, hoping in the darkness of their tragedy that there would be some light in the end. Second chances don't always go the way we hope. 12-year-old Christopher Pittman's family situation was rocky at best. His mother and father had an on-again, off-again relationship, but ultimately ended things in 2001. Christopher felt abandoned by his mother and threatened to kill himself before later running away and being admitted to an institution for troubled adolescents. There, he was put on the antidepressant medication Paxil. Three days later, Christopher went to live with his grandparents, Joe and Joy Pittman, in Chester, South Carolina, hoping for a second chance at having a functional family. Despite his rough childhood, Joe and Joy always provided the stable family environment Christopher had lacked his entire life, but the steady ground didn't last very long. A doctor switched Christopher to a different antidepressant medication, known as Zoloft, and doubled his dosage 
from 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams per day. His family instantly noted a change in him. He was fidgety and manic and complained that his entire body felt like it was burning. Just two days later, on November 28, 2011, Christopher instigated a fight with a younger boy on the bus ride home from school, and after his grandfather found out, he threatened to send Chris packing back to Florida. That same night, Christopher walked into his grandparents' bedroom with a shotgun, took aim at the bed, and fired off four shots, killing them both. He set the house ablaze and fled the scene in his grandfather's SUV. Not long after, police located and arrested Christopher, who eventually confessed to the murder, saying his grandparents deserved what they got. The trial reached national headlines when Christopher's lawyers blamed the murders on the boy's increased dosage of Zoloft, while the prosecutors argued his sense of right and wrong remained intact through his attempts to cover up his crime. Christopher eventually pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and received a 25-year sentence. While serving his time, Christopher earned a GED in 2006 and said that while he believes his grandparents have forgiven him, he doesn't think he'll ever be able to forgive himself. No matter how much love you may give to someone, that doesn't mean that they won't become a monster. Daniel Bartlam's childhood seemed bright. He lived in Nottinghamshire, England with his brother Dominic and his mother Jacqueline Bartlam, who would do anything for her children. But as Daniel entered adolescence, mother and son argued frequently over Daniel's disturbing habits. He'd become obsessed with the violence he saw on television and replicated it in graphic stories and he would destroy his expensive toys before urinating and defecating on them. In early March of 2011, 14-year-old Daniel began hearing voices co- him to hurt others and saw visions of himself stabbing people with knives. But after examining Daniel, professional counselors concluded that he was healthy and was not a threat to anyone. But on the night of April 25, 2011, it became clear how wrong they were. That evening, Daniel and Jacqueline had an argument, after which Daniel, muttering to himself, grabbed a claw hammer from the shed and attacked his mother. He struck her in the head seven times with the hammer, fracturing her skull. After she was dead, he set the house on fire in an attempt to destroy any evidence of his crimes. When the authorities arrived, Daniel tried to blame the fire and the murder on a burglar, but his story didn't align with the evidence. Police found a deleted document on Daniel's computer, which seemed to be a plan to kill his mother, disguised as a fictional story and in his room they discovered a graphic drawing of a woman being stabbed with the words die bitch written beneath daniel eventually confessed to the murder admitting he'd been inspired by a scene in a soap opera called coronation street where a character kills a woman with a hammer daniel was convicted unanimously for a minimum sentence of 16 years and family members mourned the loss of jacqueline and said they would forever be haunted by the question of why. Siblings normally become an annoyance to one another, but sometimes that's all it takes to push someone over the edge. A 12-year-old boy from Bristol, England, unnamed for legal reasons, led a troubled childhood. He was deprived and suffered the abuse of his mother's numerous boyfriends, all while living with Asperger's, a mild form of autism. He and his siblings were constantly moving, and by the time he was 12, he had been to seven different schools. On the afternoon of January 19, 2000, the boy and his mother had an argument. He wanted to go out for the day, and his mother said he wasn't allowed, even though it was a school day. Just then, the boy's six-month-old brother 
father could be heard crying from his crib upstairs. The mother ordered the young boy to take the baby its bottle while she settled in for a nap on the couch downstairs. But a sudden swell of rage overcame him, and in addition to the bottle, the boy grabbed a five-inch kitchen knife before heading upstairs, where he felt a strong desire to hurt the baby, and so he did. The boy cut off his brother's left hand, then stabbed the baby a total of 17 times in the face and neck, even turning him over in his crib to stab him in the back, jabbing the blade so forcefully he severed the infant's spine. The boy snuck out while his mother slept and wandered a bit before walking into the police station and confessing to his crime with a knife still in his hand. Police, along with the mother, discovered the horrific scene of the baby dead and mutilated in his crib. In court, the judge accepted the boy's plea of guilty to the charge of manslaughter with diminished responsibility. Mental health professionals reasoned that from the combination of the boy's home life, the argument, and his mental illness, he had suffered a sort of psychotic shift during the murder. When asked why he had done it, the boy simply answered, I want to be with my mom. Things aren't always as they appear from the outside, behind closed doors. To the small town of Monte Vista, Colorado, John Cottle seemed like any smart 14-year-old. He had a love for reading and was a bit shy, but around his friends he was always cracking jokes. However, John's goofy nature was subdued at home by the strict demands and verbal abuse he suffered at the hands of his stepfather, Tracy Reinbarger, and his mother, Joanne, who was the main instigator of his suffering. Joanne was controlling, often resorted to name-calling, and would withhold food from John as punishment for not complaining completing his never-ending list of chores. John felt like a slave in his own home, but he kept his anger to himself, enduring the abuse until the day when he finally snapped. On October 26, 2009, John came home from school, and Joanne immediately began scolding him for failing to bring her a soda. All of the repressed anger reached a boiling point as John retrieved a 22 caliber pistol from the family safe, took aim, and fired at his mother. She screamed repeatedly as he shot her eight more times before finally falling silent. Fearing his stepfather's wrath, John hid until Tracy returned home, then shot him two times in the head. But to his horror, Tracy was still breathing. John placed earplugs into each of Tracy's nostrils and dragged the bodies into his parents' bedroom and shut the door, where Tracy died shortly after. He stayed up late that night, mopping the blood off the floor, finishing the laundry, playing video games, and watching movies. The next day, John was arrested under suspicion of murder after attempting to drive his stepfather's truck to his uncle's house. Shock rolled through the small community, both at the gruesome murders and the silent abuse John suffered. While John was only 14, he was tried as an adult and pled guilty to second-degree murder for his stepfather and reckless manslaughter for his mother, amounting to 22 years in prison. John would only say that he wanted to stop the hurting, that he was sorry, and that he knew his actions were wrong. Some of us follow the footsteps of our parents while others do the exact opposite. In Sao Paulo, Brazil, Marcelo Pesagini was the 13-year-old son of two police officers. His father, Luis, had served 19 years on the police force while his mother, Andrea, had 16 years of experience. 
Marcello also lived with his great-aunt and grandmother, and was known as a quiet, gentle boy who was beloved by his classmates. Though he had a fascination with weapons and a large toy gun collection, he had never been violent towards anyone. But that was all about to change. Late on August 4th, 2013, for unknown reasons, Marcello took his father's 40 caliber police-issue pistol and killed his great-aunt, grandmother, father, and mother, shooting them all once in the head while they slept. The next day, CCTV cameras caught Marcello walking to school, but what cameras didn't see was a 32 caliber revolver tucked in his backpack. Later that same day, Marcello returned home from school and shot himself in the head with that same gun. When police discovered the five bodies at the Pesagini residence, there was no sign of forced entry. They didn't want to believe Marcello was responsible, but as the investigation progressed, it seemed the likely conclusion. A friend at school even confessed that Marcello had ambitions of becoming a hired killer and that he planned to start his career by killing his own parents. When the story hit international news, many saw the similarities between the Pesagini murders and the Amityville massacre of 1974, where Ronald DeFeo Jr. gunned down his family while they slept. Stranger still, in December of 2012, Marcello posted a popular picture of a supposed apparition in the Amityville house. But unfortunately, the answers behind this particular family massacre died with Marcello. Love can cloud a person's best judgment and sometimes leave them seeing red. Jasmine Richardson had always been a part of a tight-knit family. She loved her eight-year-old brother Jacob and was close with her mother and father, Deborah and Mark Richardson. But even the love of a family couldn't dampen the inexplicable anger and isolation 12-year-old Jasmine began to feel. She started wearing all black, identifying as a goth, and attending punk rock concerts where she would meet 23-year-old Jeremy Steinke, an unemployed high school dropout who believed he was a 300-year-old werewolf. The two instantly fell into an intense relationship, a relationship her friends criticized and her parents forbade. But that didn't stop the couple from wanting the freedom to be together, and so the lovers orchestrated a plan to kill her parents and run away together. In the early morning hours of April 23, 2006, Jeremy, dressed in black and wearing a mask, stabbed Deborah Richardson 12 times, then struggled with Mark, who fought back with a screwdriver before succumbing and being stabbed 24 times. Jasmine thought it would be cruel to let her brother live without his parents, so she slit his throat and fled the murder scene with Jeremy, but they only made it 81 miles before the police located and arrested them. While awaiting trial, the two made plans to marry, but the time behind bars would diminish their feelings for one another. By Canadian law, Jasmine could only be sentenced as a juvenile, and she was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder, with a maximum sentence of 10 years, while Jeremy, on the same charges, received three life sentences to be served concurrently. In May 2016, Jasmine was released after completing her sentence and rehabilitation program. And as for why she did it, she said, I loved him so much, I thought it would bring us closer together. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. 
a bright future extinguished by an explosion of horrific violence. Fifteen-year-old Nehemiah Griego was born into a loving family whose faith saw them through their hardships. Nehemiah's father, Greg, a former criminal turned pastor and volunteer fireman, worked tirelessly to lend spiritual guidance to others, and his mother, Sarah, was known for her kindness and delicious food. Nehemiah also shared his home in South Valley, New Mexico, with three younger siblings, nine-year-old Zephaniah, five-year-old Jael, and two-year-old Angelina. Nehemiah himself was known for being intelligent and always curious, with a particular talent for music and sports. The Griegos were always together, always close, and filled with love for one another and their community, which made the events that unfolded on the evening of January 19, 2013, all the more strange, shocking, and senseless. Around midnight, while his mother and siblings slept, Nehemiah pulled out the family's 22 caliber rifle, then shot his mother, Sarah, in the head once, killing her instantly, before turning the gun on his brother, Zephaniah, who'd been awoken by the sound of the blast. He found his sisters huddled together in their room, crying, and shot each of them once. He then sat awake in his bathroom with an AR-15 rifle until his father returned home from a night shift at the homeless shelter, where Nehemiah ambushed him and gunned him down. Afterwards, for reasons unknown, Nehemiah texted a picture of his dead mother to his 12-year-old girlfriend and later that day confessed to the murder of his family. During the investigation, Nehemiah offered no explanation for his actions other than his anger issues, saying his mother had annoyed him and that he'd initially planned to continue the violence at a local Walmart in the form of a mass shooting. The church community mourned the lives lost and prayed for Nehemiah during his trial, where he was charged as a juvenile and pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and three counts of child abuse resulting in death. Grieving and confused, family members said Nehemiah had no history of mental illness and police believed he wasn't under the influence of any substances the night of the murders. And the reason for his outburst of violence is still unknown. Nehemiah is currently 18 and is expected to be released from his local juvenile detention center when he turns 21. Children are the epitome of innocence until they're not. Eric Smith was a peculiar 13-year-old boy, a victim of bullying he was often teased for the way he looked. Beside his red hair and freckles, Eric wore large, thick glasses, which were supported by a pair of low-set ears that protruded unusually from the top. Eric was a loner, often seen riding his bike around town for hours on end by himself, unable to fit in with other children. He was described by his grandparents as a child who liked to goof around a lot and often sought attention. In the summer of 1993, Eric took part in a recreation program. It might have done well for him to get out and socialize with others in a different type of environment, despite his poor experience with it in the past. Derek Roby, at only four years old, was also attending the program. His mother would usually walk him as he was less than a block from where it was held, but that particular day, she had been tending to his younger brother. Derek assured her he could walk himself, and she let him go. Just five minutes later, the Roby family's lives would be forever changed. Derek walked down the sidewalk, quickly approaching his destination, when Eric Smith, 
just so happened to be riding by on his way as well. Eric pulled his bike over and lured Derek to an area away from the road. Once there, Eric began strangling Derek. Being nine years younger, he couldn't put up a sufficient fight. Eric choked him to near death before digging up a couple of large rocks and dropping them on Derek's head, killing him. From there, he ripped off Derek's clothes, sodomized him with a stick he found nearby, and dumped the Kool-Aid from Derek's packed lunch into the gaping wound in his head. Eric hadn't simply killed Derek, he stuck around to enjoy what he had done. Days after the murder, Eric had dropped by the police station not to confess, but to try to aid police in solving the case. He nonchalantly spoke with investigators and joyfully gave them information about what Derek was wearing the day he was murdered. But investigators only believed that Eric was a witness at first. Derek Roby was buried in his baseball uniform on August 7th, 1993. Eric confessed to the murder two days later. Eric was given the maximum sentence for juveniles, nine years to life, and he continues to serve today. Though he insists he is no longer a danger to society, he has been denied parole multiple times. His next hearing will be held in April of 2016. Sometimes evil can be so overwhelming that it simply must be shared with others. Mary Bell was born in 1957 to a 17-year-old prostitute and was fathered by a habitual criminal. Living in a slum without adequate love or care, Mary lived a terrible life. From claims that she was forced into sexual acts with men since the age of four, to her own mother trying to kill her numerous times in the earliest years of her life. Mary, as expected, was morphed into something a child should never become, a monster. Mary had began attacking and choking a number of other children, and she was firmly reprimanded for it, but no further action beyond that was taken. Mary was only 10 years old when her acts of violence became lethal. She had managed to corner a four-year-old boy named Martin Brown in an old derelict house, where she strangled him to death. Investigators believe that Martin's death was accidental, as there was an empty pill bottle near his body. But that assumption would prove costly, as Mary's darkness only grew darker. A short time after Martin's body was discovered, Mary took a walk to his family's house, when his mother had answered, she asked to see Martin. His mother reminded her that Martin had unfortunately died, and she replied, Oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. A couple of months after her first murder, she began to crave another. This time, she enlisted the help of her 13-year-old friend, Norma. They managed to trap a three-year-old boy named Brian Howe. He was strangled to death, just as Martin was. But criminal behavior does tend to evolve, and Mary's sadistic cravings were no exception. Mary later returned to Brian's body and, with a razor blade, carved an N into his stomach before switching hands and turning the N into an M, possibly to signify the first letter of each girl's name. She then used a pair of scissors to cut off some of Brian's hair, slash into his legs, and mutilate his genitals. Mary and Norma were eventually caught, and when they were told by investigators that they would be charged with the death of Martin and Brian, Mary said, that's all right by me. Mary was released from prison in 1980 at the age of 23, and she is now in her 50s, and a grandmother.
In some hearts lurks an evil that could never be changed. There are few cases darker than the story of Jesse Pomeroy. Jesse was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1859 to a widowed dressmaker. Jesse looked different from other children in a way that sounds like it came right out of a horror movie. Jesse's right eye was almost entirely white. Not much is known about Jesse's upbringing, but by the age of 11 he had developed a habit of taking younger boys to secluded areas, stripping them of their clothes, and tying them up. After this, he would punch and kick them until their entire bodies were bruised. Jesse's dark desires began to evolve, however, and eventually he would begin to cut his victims with a knife and knock out their teeth to disfigure them. Having such identifiable features, victims were able to easily assist the police in finding their attacker. Jesse was caught and sent to a reform school where he was to remain until he was 21 years of age. But Jesse was smart. He kept on his best behavior and led the staff at the school to believe that he was a changed boy, that he would be safe to release to the public once again. So instead of staying there for the 10 years he was supposed to, he was released after only two. Jesse wasted little time. He had beaten and mutilated a 10-year-old girl to death, and a month later had taken a four-year-old to a secluded area and cut him up so badly that he was nearly decapitated. The police knew of Jesse's reputation, and they knew that he had just been released from reform school. He was taken in, interrogated, and thanks to an overwhelming amount of evidence, was charged. Though he was initially given the death penalty, there was a great outcry against sentencing a child to death. He was eventually sentenced to life in solitary confinement, and he spent almost the rest of his entire 58 years on Earth there. A reporter described him as a deadened creature, gazing with lusterless eyes upon a world that meant nothing to him. A child might be the last person you suspect of murder, and that's exactly what these children were counting on. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.